This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. It's Wednesday. It's been a crazy week. It's been a crazy month. It's going to continue to be crazy. Uh, we want to do a couple different things today. There was a giant and historic and, and maybe actually important report out of Congress yesterday about antitrust. It affects Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple, maybe, uh, and kind of all of the internet. Um, and it's 400 pages long, and we don't expect you to read it, so we have my colleague Shireen Ghaffari come in to explain what's in the report and why it matters. And then after that, uh, I've got an interesting conversation with Jim Vandehei, who's the CEO of Axios, uh, which has had a real rocket ride um, since it launched um, right at the beginning of the Trump administration. And we talk a little bit about sort of navigating the craziness of Trump world and, and then sort of how to build um, what appears by all accounts to be a thriving digital media organization in a sort of a post-Facebook era, maybe in the Facebook era. I'm not quite sure how to describe it right now. Um, anyway, they're both good chats. You're going to get to them right now. So first, we're going to hear from Shireen. Shireen, I am looking at a document called Investigation of Competition in Digital Markets, Majority Staff Reports and Recommendations. Um, I think this is what we commonly call the big honkin' uh, Congressional Antitrust Report. They've been working on it for 16 months. They have a million documents. They did a bunch of interviews. They had a, a sort of historic hearing where, where um, members of Congress uh, interviewed all four big tech CEOs, including Jeff Bezos. What does this report say and why does it matter? The main finding is that the committee, the subcommittee thinks that all of these companies are engaging in anti-competitive behavior, that they have amassed too much power and they're using unfair tactics uh, that violate the free market to maintain that dominance. Now, they, they pretty much said that going in. They said essentially 16 months ago, this is what we think the problem is. If you listen to any of them talk, you would know they were going to reach that conclusion. If you listen to the, the actual hearing, you knew they were headed that way. So what is the importance of the report? Well, first of all, it's, you know, they've given us bits and pieces of their findings along the way, and they've had seven hearings uh, where they bring in experts and, and CEOs. But this is sort of the full picture, right, of all their hard work. And then also, it goes a step further to actually give some recommendations about how to fix this problem, um, which are still pretty high level, but we can get into that more. You know, there, there are prescriptions here on what to do about this. Got it. So, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. So, They'd spent a ton of time putting this stuff together, and I was skimming through it yesterday, and I kept seeing 
citations of stories that I've read before in other news organizations, and then a bunch of stuff that you and my colleague Jason Del Rey have written for Recode Vox. So a lot of this is literally old news, right? They're citing stuff that has been out publicly for quite some time. Was there stuff that was new that they uncovered um, that was of particular interest? Yes, there were some new things. Even though, again, of course, they're drawing in all these public reports, they had actual uh, interviews with whistleblowers, including you know former and a former Instagram employee who said, you know, I don't, I think that what happened when Facebook bought Instagram was basically internal collusion because they felt that Facebook was intentionally stymieing Instagram's growth uh, once they bought the company and and saw it as a competitor even after the company bought it. Um, so you had some great little snippets like that from their behind-the-scenes interviews with, with people who were essentially telling on their own employers or former employers. So they're essentially adding their own reporting on to existing reporting is one way of looking at it. That's, that's right. Uh, and was there anything there that really, beyond that Instagram snippet where you've got a disaffected, I'm sorry, I don't want to frame it that way. <laughs> when, you've got so, so, when you've got a former employee saying, I've got a problem with what, my, with what my former employer did, anything else that stood out? I mean, yeah, there were tons. I think with Google, you saw that the company, uh, you know, many people are saying it sort of came across like like Google was refusing to acknowledge sort of its uh, market dominance to the subcommittee, but then the subcommittee clearly presented this evidence that, look, Google, it, a majority of searches that people do are on Google, and I think sort of even the withholding of information that you saw from some of these companies was more telling than anything. Um, and the committee didn't go so far as to subpoena uh, any documents, but that is something that they can do in the future, and they talked about in the report. Yeah, we should spell that out, right? They, they got Tim Cook and the other big CEOs to show up, um, but they can't force them to say something they don't want to say. Uh, they didn't subpoena any, anything. So it's the reason it sort of looks like this is a uh, an assembly of things that we are familiar with is because they either didn't or couldn't dig a lot deeper than that. This is sort of an assembly. Um, there are four companies that are focused on, Google, Facebook, um, Amazon, Apple. Where did they spend the most time in the report, and, and what does that tell us? So I think they actually spent the most time on Google and, I believe, Amazon, which makes a lot of sense because I think, you know, you have some of the strongest cases there for uh, a potential anti-competitive monopoly case, right? Especially with Amazon controlling these third-party sellers on its platform, um, it's a clear way where you can start to say, hey, is there you know, essentially price gauging going on or is there a situation where Amazon can directly kind of copy um, the sellers that, are, that when they do well on their platform and start to make some of those products themselves rather than letting these third parties go and sell the products. So that you know, it makes sense that they would focus on Amazon in that way. And then Google, it makes sense just because Google is, is you know, the biggest in terms of its reach of, of the internet and, and everything that, that we do on there. I mean, they control not only search, but also maps. Uh, there's a lot of talk about that. They're competing in voice, but Amazon also just dominates the, the voice search market. So those two were, were really the ones that got the most attention in the report. But sh- should we look at that and say, look, the, this committee spent a lot of time looking at four tech companies, it's, but it's most interested in Google and Amazon. Thus, if we're going to have legislation eventually, it's most likely to be targeted at Google and Amazon. And by extension, maybe for Facebook, you feel a little bit better after reading this report. And if you're Apple, which seemed to get not that dinged up at 
all uh, in the report, you go, eh, we're, we're in pretty good shape. Uh, I wouldn't say Facebook is out of the woods by any means. I think they mm-hmm. are getting a lot of pressure just because of the the high profile that social media has in our society and that it's used by politicians, right? So, you know, you also have this these competing reports out from Republicans that include, um, you know, mention of the anti-conservative bias. And I think that's where a company like Facebook almost gets more pressure than a Google, certainly more so than an right. Amazon. So let's 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 talk about that for a second. Yeah. Um, so the the title of this is the 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 majority report, right? Um, or maybe I've got a uh, majority staff report and recommendations. So I think the the hope was initially this would be a bipartisan report. Republicans and Democrats would both sign off on this. That has not happened, and I think there are going to be three different reports by the time we're done. That's right. There's going to be three reports. Uh, and they sort of, the other two competing ones got out ahead of the main one uh, because, you know, the, the announcement that they were going to happen came the, the day before, I believe, the main one was released. So one of them will be from uh, Representative Ken Buck of Colorado. That's more of a middle of the way, I would say, dissent report in that uh, Buck, based on the drafts that we've seen, he agrees with a lot of the general problems that the Democrats have with these companies being, you know, in their view, monopolies. But he doesn't think that we need new legislation. Uh, he doesn't want to go so far as to create like a new Glass-Steagall that would break up these companies, which is definitely a possibility uh, based on the, the, the majority's findings. He instead says, hey, we can just fund the existing regulatory agencies like the FTC more and empower them to go after these tech companies more aggressively. Uh, and not everyone thinks that's going to work, and that may not be sufficient, but that's Buck's idea. Then the other rep- uh, competing report is from uh, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio. And he has been, like I was saying, the leader of sort of taking down tech companies for what he feels is this anti-conservative bias. And you hear that claim repeated by President Trump and a lot of leaders in the Republican Party who cite without any evidence, really, um, that they feel these companies are systematically against conservatives. And they're especially angered when they see something like a fact check on one of many President Trump's false claims. And this is why I always have been saying for quite some time that I don't think anything's going to serious is going to come out of Congress because when they, when people are talking about reforming tech, they're talking about at least two very different ideas that don't have anything to do with each other. And it's impossible to imagine legislation that makes the Ted Cruz's and Jim Jordan's of the world happy, as well as the David Cicilline's happy. So what, what does happen now? We've got, we'll have three different reports. It's clear that Congress isn't going to act on it anytime in the very near future. So what happens next? Well, Peter, I've heard that really, you know, this political squabbling, while it may seem like it's a, it's a huge distraction, diversion, that actually, in some ways, it could end up not mattering if Democrats do take control of Congress and even better, you know, also the presidency, um, for, for better for Democrats, and 2020 in this election, um, because then they don't really need Republicans to get on board necessarily. If they have enough votes in their own party, um, they could push through their own legislation. And so in some ways, a lot of people are looking at this Congress report as a blueprint for a Biden or Democrat-led government in 2021. 
So that's one one possibility. So there's a theory where you have a sweep and you have Democrats con- uh, controlling all three uh, branches of government, uh, or at least the Congress and, and, and the presidency, and they go to work and they create legislation. There are a lot of recommendations here about sort of um, actions uh, the committee wants them to take. What, what's the most important one or most likely one you think will come out of this in that scenario? I think that you will definitely have some uh, if Democrats especially are controlling Congress, you will have some draft legislation coming out uh, that tries to either modify um, or altogether write a new law around antitrust that could be applied to the tech industry. I think the big question will be how strong will that legislation end up being? Will it just be tweaking the rules or will it truly be this kind of new era of antitrust that will break, you know, make it very easy to break up these big tech companies entirely? But there's specific, I mean, the, the things that they're suggesting here are things like you, you need structural changes in the companies and you shouldn't yeah. be able to be, sort of like be a gatekeeper and also have your own competitive service there. Uh, there's there, there's a call there to sort of prevent any future M&A unless the company can sort of make their case to some sort of legislative or, or, or regulatory body that says, can we have permission to buy this thing, which would be a big change. It, do you have a sense of sort of which one of those proposals is is most important to lawmakers right now? I don't think we know that yet because we don't really have signaling from uh, the powers that be, you know, Speaker Pelosi, Joe Biden, they haven't gone so far as to say, you know, what kind of potential antitrust legislation they would get behind. But they've all complained that they do think, you know, tech companies have too much power. They've talked about reforming Section 230, which is not an antitrust uh, piece of legislation, but would, uh, you know, would limit the power of something like a Facebook and that it would force it to more carefully control what goes on in its platform. And so, yeah, I don't think we know yet what what route exactly people are going to take. But I think at minimum, there is some stuff that both uh, the middle-of-the-way Republican dissent report and this one agreed on, which is that, uh, you know, we can have more data interoperability, which means that it should be easier for different tech companies to be able to share their data information, the big ones shouldn't, you know, guard their their data in that way. So if you want to move it over to some some other service, you can. Um, they have talked a lot about like you're right, not letting the gatekeeper of the marketplace then be the one who determines the prices for what's on that marketplace. So I think there there are ways. There are definitely middle of the road ways, but the strongest action again, and the big question that that people are asking is. Is there going to be a new Glass-Steagall? Is there going to be a new law that explicitly calls for a company like Google, let's say, to break up its search product from everything else, right? Or an Amazon to break up its web services from its marketplace in terms of buying goods? That is going to be, I think, the big million-dollar antitrust question, or I should say trillion-dollar antitrust question. Multiple trillion-dollar antitrust (laughs) question. Uh, Shireen, um, thank you for your time. It was a 400-page report for you to go through, so thank you for reading all of it so you could summarize it for us today. We're going to let you go. You can follow Shireen's work over at recode.net. Thanks, Shireen. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks again to Shireen. And now here's my conversation with Jim Vandehei of Axios. Talking to Jim Vandehei, who is CEO and founder of Axios, which everyone who listens to this podcast now knows of. Four years ago, no one had heard of, or very few people had heard of. You guys have had a sort of a 
uh, a rocket ship ride. So thanks for making time. I think a week or two ago, I think the idea was we were going to spend most of our time talking about your business model and how things are working for you. We can still get to that, but there's news. We should talk about the news. I think the Trump COVID story, which is a rapidly breaking story, we're recording this on a Monday. By the time you hear this, things will have changed, is a good way to sort of get into what Axios does, right? The idea is you guys initially were going to provide us with sort of um, up to the minute breaking news, insidery perspective on, on Washington and beyond, which is what you had done at Politico. And watching the Trump story, the COVID story unfold over the last few days, and you guys even wrote about it, to me points out sort of the frustrations of traditional reporting about this White House in particular, which is there, um, everyone from Donald Trump on down is untrustworthy or uninformed and often both. And I'm wondering sort of as someone who's putting together a news organization that is first and foremost supposed to cover the White House and cover Washington, if you feel like there's just a natural limit to what you can do covering the Trump presidency specifically. Uh, we can spend four hours on this topic. Yeah. It could be like Joe Rogan time on this. Well, a couple things. Like one, uh, we started and sort of continue to not actually be that much of a D.C.-focused publication. About 10% of our staff focuses on politics. But like you said, and, and everything else is AI, robotics, basically any topic that will change the next 10 years. Then along comes Trump. We moved up our launch because we had an interview with President Trump, and it's kind of an off-to-the-races where every day – it's all about him. He essentially forces himself into the hour-by-hour -hour conversation, regardless of where you live or what you're trying to cover. And then you layer on top of that the complexity that you just mentioned, which is every day is unlike anything any of us ever thought we would experience. So on the, on the bad side of the ledger, it's the constant attack on us as a, an institution. It's the manipulation, uh, the lies, just the, the things that you have to deal with. On the plus side of the ledger, he's probably the most transparent president that we've ever had in terms of you have more access to him. He tells you exactly what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. I think he's the most predictable politician we'll ever see in our lifetime. It's not hard to figure out how he's going to handle uh, any situation. Uh, he's going to tell you how he's going to handle that situation. He might try to manipulate it in terms of how he talks about it, either through bragging or through uh, downplaying, but he is like this this never-ending stream of consciousness about what he's doing, feeling, and thinking. In the moment, right? But that changes quite often when he's presented with new information and other voice. So I think it's a little harder than you say to sort of figure out what he's doing because what he says in the moment doesn't have anything to do with what he's going to do 30 seconds later. Correct. But he's going to tell you 30 seconds later what he's going to do. And then obviously the hard part is having to go fact check and basically hold it up against the record. And we've seen that throughout the coronavirus. So it's exceptionally uh, disorienting. And the only way you can really ground yourself, I think, as an institution and as a reporter is what we tell Swan and all of our people who cover politics, which is try to cover this thing clinically. Don't get sucked into the emotionalism, which is easy to get sucked into because he's going after like the, our very essence of being in terms of an industry and just try to get people to the closest approximation of what we know the truth to be on any given moment in terms of what they're doing uh, and the motivation uh, behind it. And like, uh, you know, we've obviously have pretty good access and sourcing around there. So we have like some visibility into it. But like you said, every day is a house of mirrors. And I think even Republicans who love him would say it, it's a house of mirrors in a way that is so distorting, disorienting. And the thing that like, that to me, like the, the shame of the four years, if I look at it just selfishly from an Axios perspective, or even from a societal perspective is 
God, there's so many big things that are happening. These tectonic plates are shifting underneath our feet, whether it's climate, whether it's AI, whether it's what to do with uh, with these big social platforms that are more powerful than any institutions we've seen in the history of humanity. And yet somehow we collectively get sucked into sort of the daily, whatever, like mind musing or tweet uh, that Trump uh, sends out. And I think it's going to take a decade for us to sort of sort through uh, the wreckage. And the wreckage, I mean, kind of the destruction of a shared truth. And that's getting worse, not better. Of all the things that scare the shit out of me, it's the number of really smart people that I know that no longer believe things that are, to me, easily verifiable. Yeah, I want to I want to push on that in a minute. But just to talk about this weekend, right? So, you know, I'm trying to think of, you know, so in this podcast, in my world, we were paying a lot of attention to the, the TikTok lawsuit and what was going on. It became quite clear that Trump either didn't know or was changing his mind periodically or and all of the above. When you get to his health... How sick is he? Um, is he recovering? What kind of, you know, what kind of treatment is he getting? We just were in this sort of spectacularly disorienting moment for over the weekend, at least, where it was very unclear whether anyone knew. Um, his doctors were clearly not being truthful to the public. You had Mike Meadows speaking, uh, he would say one thing to the press off the record and another thing on the record to Reuters. For the American public, what should you do if you're just a, an interested consumer of news? Uh, let, let's leave Axios out for a second. And, and you're just trying to figure out what is happening to the leader of the free world. Do you go about your day and hope it all gets sorted out by the next time you pick up a physical newspaper? Should you be paying attention to Twitter? It just seems like um, it's paralyzing. Um, and then we can talk about sort of how you report it out as well. I think that uh, my advice, if it were a family member asking, is I'd say check in once a day in the morning. Look at the wall. If you're not going to look at Axios, look at the Wall Street Journal, look at the New York Times and get a summary. Because the truth is we don't really know more now than we knew three days ago. We knew little bits, That's right. bits and pieces, largely because of leaks and because of good reporting. But to this moment, we don't. This is Monday morning. We still don't know the state of the president's health. And I say what's different this time is the influx of calls we're getting from high level officials who are who are authentically uh, really hacked off. They are they're to be honest, they're pissed. They feel like they have their boss, their bosses putting them in unhealthy situations and not telling not just the American public the truth, which I think they're they're often used to, they're not telling them the truth. There's no contact tracing. There's none of the precautions. A lot of the people are, you know, you have the vice president sending his staff home. You don't have the president doing the same for his same. And so we're all trying to sort through it. And I think I just think it's unhealthy for most people to be consuming this much content of any kind as often as we are. And in situations like this, when the known knowns that you actually need to know uh, are going to be, it's going to take a little while to get to it. So go live your life, go volunteer, go do something more productive than sitting there on Twitter or refreshing your web browser to see if you can figure out what the latest thing is and whether or not it can be verified or, or trusted. And I think that's like that right there, like we're talking about his health. But fundamentally, I think this is, if you think about the, the issues that are plaguing America in particular right now, we basically have content paralysis, which is leading to this deterioration of any kind of shared truth. And I don't feel like I'm being hyperbolic in listening to your show. I don't think you would think I'm being hyperbolic when I say it's it, it's a sort of a clear and present danger to the future of democracy. Like it, it, is, it, is, it is getting worse by the day. And people try to isolate it. They try to say, well, it's Trump or it's Facebook. No, no, no. It's all of these things that have been happening together for 15 years that are hard to peel apart, hard to peel 
politics away from media, media away from social platforms, social platforms away from truth. And somehow, collectively, we have to take a deep breath and we have to move fast to think about how do you set some rules around here, whether it's rules for the platform, rules for media, rules for politicians, rules for all of us and how we consume content on an individual basis, or we're headed in a place that does not give me a hell of a lot of reassurance. So I agree with everything you said, except that your framing makes it sound like this is a problem where everyone has responsibility. Everyone has equal amounts of responsibility. No, not everyone. But that's not, but that's not the case. No, no, not at all. I'm not saying that everyone has equal amounts of responsibility. What I'm saying is take Donald Trump out of it. Like, obviously, Donald Trump deserves a hell of a lot more blame than most people. And again, I think people even close to him would agree with it. He manipulates media. He says things that are patently untrue. He distorts things about public health and, and things that are like urgent matters in a way no one has before. What I'm trying to say is that is also linked to these other things like Donald Trump without the amplification of fake misleading mm-hmm. news on social platforms isn't as dangerous or as powerful as he is uh, with those. And then all the creation of all these different media ecosystems that operate in little silos, sometimes in the shadows are clearly having an effect on the human mind. There's no doubt about it. Think about your own brain. Think about your own behavior. Think about the people that you're running into on a daily basis. That, what I'm saying is once Trump burns off, whether Trump leaves because he loses in a month or he leaves Mm -hmm. in four years, whenever, we're going to still have this massive problem that's sort of a pre-existing condition that we have to get our hands around because we really haven't done it. Right, right. but again, we'll strip out Trump for a minute. Trump didn't manifest out of a vacuum. It wasn't manifested out of thin air. He came out of years and years of a Republican slash conservative way to sort of shape reality, shape the news. There's a very good New York Times piece out this weekend about the 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 myth of voter fraud. That is not something Donald Trump invented. That's a long-running Republican myth um, that they've been pushing and arguing for. And oftentimes when people talk about Fox News, the standard sort of Murdoch defense is, well, you have Fox News on one side and MSNBC on the other side, but they're they're not equal at all in terms of their reach and their perniciousness. And this is sort of where I wanted to get to you with you. You are you, you, I think, personally and and certainly as a business, you guys say, look, we are avidly we're we're in the middle Um, and you've published op eds to that effect. And there should be a third way sort of independent of conservative Democrats. And it seems like you, that's a way of assigning blame to both sides in a way that isn't accurate or fair. Yeah, I think, again, I, I, sort of to argue this out a little bit, like I don't, I don't actually agree that we're like an independent or that we are like we're just like a nonpartisan, blindly to be nonpartisan. If you actually look at our manifesto, we're very clear that there's certain assumptions that we make. We don't argue as a publication whether or not the earth is warming. 19 and the 20th, 20 warmest years have happened in the last 20 years. Therefore, what do you do about that? That is a fact. We don't argue whether or not China is a growing and rising uh, threat and adversary to the United States. We work from the presumption that it is. We don't argue whether or not technology is moving faster than the human mind can keep up with. And if you don't understand the ramifications of that, that you're going to have huge societal problems. We take it as a fact. We take uh, disinformation at scale on social platforms as a reality and a fact that has to be grappled with. And so like this I feel like it's sort of antiquated to be like, well, it's like both siderisms or everything is viewed through a political lens when I actually think the world's a lot more complicated than that. And uh, and if I had like one wish, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be that the conversations wouldn't be so much about politics because politics is interesting. And obviously what's happening in the moment is uh, of epic proportions in terms of its in meaningfulness. But when then you step aside, there's just so many bigger things happening. And if we don't figure these things out, somebody else will. 
And so that to me is a higher purpose uh, of Axios. It's not to be an independent uh, option to the two parties or to be nonpartisan for nonpartisan's uh, sake. To your point, I don't disagree with you that there's one party right now or, or Donald Trump, one sort of one factor in the party that is way disproportionately to blame for the level of manipulation and misinformation that's flowing. We've never seen that before. And I don't know how any Republican could come on and argue otherwise. And even the people around Donald Trump wouldn't argue this. We talk to them all the time. They understand exactly what's going on. Now, I'd say they're enablers because they just stand there and allow it uh, to happen. But my point is, once Trump goes away, and even if Trump had never existed, these other underlying problems need to be thought about and need to be fixed. We're, what, we're 15 years into Apple and to Google and to Facebook, and we've done almost nothing to really put rules around, like, what should we do with our data? What should we do with misinformation? How do we keep kids and adults from being manipulated by information that may or may not be uh, true, done at scale at a relatively low cost? Like, that's kind of a big deal to me. So we agree on that. But again, I've, I've been reading Mike Allen's letter since it started running uh, in yeah. Axios format. And he, he would studiously would say, this is the perspective from this side and this is the perspective from that side. And you would get into these sort of like really sort of gross situations where you're, you know, so-and-so is arguing that it's okay to cage kids and these people say it's not. And um, I don't... I, 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 I would challenge you to show me an example. I was, gonna, I was just going to say that if I fact check myself on that one, I'd probably get in trouble. <laughs> just don't do that. But, like, but it happens, it happens, it happens all the time in Mike's letter and in your coverage in general. You'd say, this is, this is the perspective of this group. This is the perspective no, of another. I don't agree with you. I think you, would, you can't just say that, Peter. You have to be able to show me an example of that. I don't think at all. I think if you look at Mike's AM, which is probably, I would argue, the most influential piece of real estate in media, maybe other than the front page of the New York Times in terms of who I know reads it on a daily basis. He's very clinical. I think he's very sharp about like what matters and what's truth and what's not truth. There's not really any value in saying the Republicans said this today and the Democrats said this today. I don't even think really any publication does that anymore. I think that's an argument that takes place on Twitter that is tethered to a reality of two or three years ago. I feel like we've moved beyond that for, for the most part. I'm not saying you don't still find pieces of that. But I don't feel like that is the fundamental challenge for journalism right now. I think there are many pieces of it. But okay, why why do you think Trump agreed to have sit-downs with John Swan and, and Axios in general? I don't know. I think that he, if I had to guess, we've interviewed him several times. I think he thinks we're tough. I don't think he loves us. But I think he thinks we try to get to the closest approximation of the truth and that while we write stuff on a routine basis that he wish wasn't out there, he probably knows it to be true. Uh, and there's an ego to him. I think he feels like I kind of want to go against the, the people who are really good at covering me. And I, he, I think he feels like, ah, if I'm on TV or I've get an extended time to be able to make an argument, I'll win that argument. If you go back and watch the interview, which we aired in full, by the way, he wanted it aired in full. I, I, I thought the interview was not great for him. He still was like, oh, yeah, this is great. Like, go air 45 minutes of me because it's 45 minutes of me. Uh, and so I don't know. It's, I mean, it's a, the damnedest thing when you deal with him. We've had a couple of interviews. And if he says he's going to do an interview, he'll do it. And then you might just get a random phone call. There's no staff involved. You pop over. You might get 10 minutes. You might get two hours. It's not like any other political organization that, that we've ever – I mean, I've been in this for 25 years. I don't ever recall – getting interviews with the president of the United States where they don't even call and ask you what you're interested in talking about. It's just, yeah, he decided to do it. And when Swan and I did one a year and a half ago, we showed up and there was nobody there. It was just him. 
we asked how long we had, like, I don't know, it depends how, what kind of mood he's in. <laughs> it ended up going like an hour. And it's well, just, this uh, one he'd prepared for. He brought his, he brought his printouts. Um, well, so there'd been some printouts because he was getting a lot of shit uh, for uh, the, the false arguments that he was trying to make about the infection phase. So they clearly had had the things that he had been trying to make the argument in a fairly clumsy way before. And it was just Swan came in. And I will say, like, Swan is what you want in reporters, which are people who come to the table fully armed with like a mastery of their subject. His subject happens to be politics and Trump. But you want the same thing for people who cover climate or technology or AI. Like to us, we, we, if you think of like, where do we put our money? We put our money in people who have subject matter expertise. Uh, Sarah Fisher, who you're familiar with in the media space, is smart as hell. Like there's nobody who comes across her that doesn't say, yeah, she's probably one of the most wired, interesting people covering the institution and media. That's the type of people uh, that we want. And I think Swan showed in that, in a respectful way, but in a pretty aggressive way in that interview of what being prepared and being on top of your game looks like. He was more aggressive in that one, notably than a previous one where he was roundly criticized. Do you feel like that criticism he got for a previous interview sort of affected the way he, he, he conducted this one? I don't know. I have never really tried to peel back the psychology. I thought that he did fine in the in the first interview. He's a student of the game. Like he does the like, again. Like like how does a, a Maggie Haberman become Maggie Haberman? How does a Swan become a Swan? It's the same way that Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan. Like shooting a lot of damn free throws and wanting to be better than anybody else. And yeah, so that, it's a mix. It's a mix of talent and wiring, right? It's, wiring but effort like how yeah. are you really good at what you do i'm sorry like you probably were born from the right gene pool in terms of like you're a really smart person born with some level of ambition and then you're hopefully i assume like a student of the game you're reading you're watching i know you said that jim i've, I've seen that before like that you can't and that's hard the work ethic i have kids i try to teach them all the time how do you teach grit how do you teach work ethic and it's hard because some of it is just kind of naturally has to be there and then part of it you tease out but having you know Maggie work for us at Politico, Swan works here. They're just two of the harder working people I've ever met in any profession, and they're constantly on the phone. And the more you're on the phone talking to people, the more you know. The more you know, the more you can leverage that information. I want to ask you one more politics question, and then I want to talk about the, your business. We had you come on uh, stage with us fall of 2016 after the election, before you had launched, and you were trying to explain a lot. There was a lot of like, "How did Trump win?" explanations, and you, and you. You were arguing, I remember very clearly, that, that a lot of what had happened is people had misunderstood the heartland, the Trump voters, and those Trump voters were tired of being talked down to. Um, you were talking about your family and friends in Wisconsin. And I remember specifically you were saying, you know, they were being told, they were being lectured about uh, LGBTQ bathroom policies. And we spent a lot of time trying to debate what we missed and what we got wrong about Trump and who the Trump voter was. Four years into it, have you changed any of your assumptions about what led him to victory four years ago and, and, and who a Trump voter is today? I mean, I've probably evolved a little, but not that much. Like I, I even saw it all summer again, again, partly uh, in family members, partly I spent a lot of time in, in rural Wisconsin and rural Maine. And if anything, those people are more passionate about Trump than ever. They're you know painting his name on their boat or waving a flag across their uh, yard. They're more hacked off at, at the media. They don't believe a damn thing that we say in a way that I find exceptionally offensive and, and dangerous. Uh, I'd say that maybe the piece we didn't talk about in that interview that uh, I think continues to echo in, 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 a, in a very relevant way right now is just how much Christians, despite him and despite, like I don't think anyone around him really thinks that he's with 
uh, Christianity on abortion or with them even on the, on the core of the faith, yet they love him. And almost uh, he's almost a messiah to some uh, Christians that I run into, uh, mainly because of what he's done with the court, but also other uh, smaller actions that he's taken that the evangelical community finds pleasing. And I think it's those two strands that continue to sustain him. Like the, the, one of the great things we'll be thinking about for a hundred years is how did 40% of America through thick and thin, through the worst of the worst that you could ever imagine in terms of politics, the, the access Hollywood tape, the you know, coronavirus comments on tape with Woodward, the, the, the lying about the efficacy of masks and then him getting sick. How did this 40% of the country stick with him? And I do think it is that what we got right after 2016 that I think is true is just like this visceral nature where like politics isn't an intellectual sport anymore, big government versus small government. It's almost a, it's like a lifestyle choice. It yeah. Really the three, the, the three Trump voters that I know who are in swing states and are in my families are not Christian, they're Jewish and they, but what they are is dug in. Um, it doesn't matter any discussion you have with them. It sounds as if you are talking to Fox news or a daily wire Facebook feed and, at least in two of the cases, I don't think they consume any of that stuff. So I don't know where they're getting it from, but they are fully dug in and there is no discussion you can have with them, or at least not one that I've been able to figure out. The Trump voter you just described has now been programmed. They're hardened, as you just described. When Trump goes, it's not like we snap back into the Paul Ryan party or snap back into the Mitt Romney party. The most powerful pieces of Trumpism will live on, whether it's through his family or it's through, you know, the, the, the Ben Shapiro's and others who thrived on Facebook, or it's through the evolution and, 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 and sort of Trumpyism of, of, of Fox News. Like all those pieces are so much stronger than whatever used to exist of establishment, small government republicanism. And so like that, if Trump does lose, is going to be a, such a fascinating unfolding story of like, what, what does this party even stand for once you take away the person it stood for out of the equation? Do you feel like that segment of America, big slice of America, 40%, do you think they look at Axios, if they are familiar with it, as part of the media establishment and they have the same level of distrust they would have for that as the Washington Post, the Times, or anything else they would consider a left-leaning source? Or do you think you've carved out a middle ground? I think there's some who fall into the category of we've been following your career forever. You're part of the mainstream media. You're awful. Uh, I would say like I get I probably got 20 emails yesterday from conservative readers who are like, oh, I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt. I still feel like you guys are crapping on Trump way too much, but I like your format. And I feel like you guys are like more fair than other outlets. So I, I think it's a mix and it is something we think a lot about in terms of like I just I want so badly for people to believe truth again. And like, if we can be a little piece of people having a fuller understanding of the complexities of a really fast changing world, if we can get them tethered to things that we all believe to be true, that we, that we were trying to get you to the closest approximation of the truth so you can make better decisions. If we can get some of those people who are persuadable to read us, that's good business. And I think it's just a good thing to do with our lives. I'm not dumb. Like I understand that there's a chunk of society that's never going to trust a damn thing because of the industry that I chose. I, I don't think it's a massive number. I think it maybe it's 25% of the country that's just not ever going to care about us or listen to us or even take the time to read us. But there's a big chunk of persuadables. And I hope that with time, we do our job 
to the best of our ability and that wins them over because they see the value that we add to the content that we create. I'm going to pause our conversation with Jim Vandehei for just a second so we can hear from a fine sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back. So let's talk about the business, um, which credit where credit's due. You guys started Standing Start 2017, uh, and you're now telling the Wall Street Journal that at the end of this year, you'll have done $58 million in revenue in a pandemic year, um, profitable, profitable last year as well. What did your plan call for in 2016? Did you approach anything close to these numbers, or are you way above where you thought you were going to be? We knew we would get to 40 to 45 within four years based on our experience at Politico. We thought it would get hard at that. And I think what gives me optimism, putting aside Axios, a couple of things are happening that, that uh, as you, I, I listen to your podcast all the time. So you're like me, a little bit uh, cynical, maybe uh, we would uh, describe ourselves as clinical. All right. So we're a couple of things that make me optimistic are one, I see real value and I see real momentum for high quality journalism. So whether it's the, the Atlantic, the New York Times, us, the information, Wall Street Journal, everybody is doing pretty well, even in a tough year. That makes me hopeful. Facebook, which was and, and the big social platforms, which sort of destroyed so much of media, they're no longer that much of a threat. Like Facebook is a massive net plus for us if you take into account how much advertising they do, how you're able to use their platform to target and bring in uh, new readers and the amount of traffic. How much and advertising like, they do on your site, on your properties? Yeah, like all yeah. of uh, all of the for everybody in the media. But I yep. would say that Facebook and these platforms are now net positives for a lot of bigger media companies. People are showing a little bit more willingness in the case of the Atlantic, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the Post, to pay for content. And then you have these uh, uh, these other platforms, the Netflixes, the HBOs of the world that have a need for more content and high quality content providers like ourselves suddenly have at least the potential of another possible revenue stream. And so those things have all now given us hope that even if without a paywall, this could easily be a, a well north of a hundred million dollar uh, advertising business uh, and continue to grow. We'll grow about thirty five percent this year. We'd like to keep growing at a rate something uh, like that, which would be a great success story. And I don't, did, and we didn't even, you know, we talked some. The journal got a lot on their own, but we talked some to them because I do want people to realize that 
there's hope in media, that there are ways to build high quality media companies. We did it with Politico. We're doing it with Axios. And I'm a big believer in capitalism. And I'm a big believer in the power of entrepreneurs to really do good and to create new and better companies. And so I want people, I actually want more competitors. I want people to get into the media space and see that, yes, there was a lot of false uh, hope and maybe like a lot of false uh, ideas the first 15 years of sort of the, the technology revolution in terms of new media that fizzled out, but that there's a lot of little success stories out there. And this is a space that I think is becoming more attractive, not less attractive. And that what, is the contrary. What, so what got you well above your projections? Is it Trump? Uh, I mean, the, the, you're, you're, you're at a much faster pace at a, at a higher level than you thought you were going to be. What, what accounts for that? I would say it, it's a few of the things I just talked about, that the uh, the big one being the advertising market that we're in is way healthier and way bigger than we had anticipated. And the advertising market we're in, which you know is image advertising or corporate social responsibility. It's basically companies that want really smart people to know that they care about something other than just profit. These are the folks who would have been advertising on a Sunday show and maybe still are advertising on a Sunday show. But if you go back, that's a great analogy. But if you go back to the Sunday show, it might have been five or 10 companies that did it. Now it's hundreds of companies and a lot of them are doing it at a scale we've never seen before because it links not just to how the public sees them, but how their employees see them. Your average smart person has a lot of opportunities before them, and they want to believe that they're working for a company that stands for something. That, too, by the way, is another good societal trend that doesn't get enough attention. I do think the pressure from shareholders, the pressure from media, the pressure from the public at large is forcing companies to think about doing more than just making money, to being better to their employees, to doing more in their local community, to taking a stand on issues. I know that makes a lot of CEOs uncomfortable. I think it's a great thing because we're sitting in a period of time where government is pretty damn incompetent. Like government has just not been uh, sort of a beacon of hope for for many of us in terms of solving problems. Well, then we need not-for-profits and for-profit companies and organizations to step in and do what government often can't do or often isn't as good as the, the free market at doing. So if businesses do that, that's a good thing. We're a big beneficiary of that because if you're trying to reach an elite reader in media, technology, business, or politics, I'd like to think we're at the top of the list or near at the top of the list, which explains why advertising will be up you know, way higher than we ever thought this year. You guys had initially thought you were going to have a subscription business. This was the political model, right? You, you, the base was was uh, people who needed to be inside the room. You would charge them subscriptions. There'd be a free version for people like me. Or maybe I've had the subscription as well. Um, and you've now pushed that back several times. At this point, can you turn on a subscription model? Not you train oh, people to get Axios for free? Yeah, you and I've had this conversation before. Like, basically, there's at no point whether we would have done it last year or we do it next year or five years from now. Anytime we would put up a paywall, at least based on what I know about the environment today, is it would be additive content. It wouldn't be what the Atlantic's doing or the New York Times does, which is like the stuff you were getting for free, you suddenly have to pay for. Because we can make, because we're smaller than the New York Times, we can still make a lot more money off of advertising than we could slapping up a paywall. When we do do a paywall, it will be services or content above and beyond what the general audience is getting, and we would charge a lot of money for it. The reason we've always said we're going to push it off until we see advertising not growing at a really high rate. It now looks like that advertising number is going to end up over the next three years way higher than we thought. That doesn't mean we won't still do a paywall in that time period, but it just means the upside of free content is still really high. And then we have this sort of side 
uh, company, company inside of a company called HQ, where we allow other companies to be able to communicate the way we communicate. We call it smart brevity, but it's essentially really a sort of effective, efficient, hierarchical conveying of information, one to many. That it's, a, people, it's a white label newsletter product, essentially, right? Yeah, with additional things that make it a lot easier for you to be a writer and a communicator, especially in an efficient way. I think people don't understand how much value there is in efficiency. The human mind is clogged. If you can unclog it, you can unlock tremendous amount of value, and we're seeing that. And so we'll let those things play out. And my guess is, yes, we're going to slap a, a paywall on at a very high level uh, at some point. I don't think we'll do it this year. I'd be surprised if we even do it next year. But we'll probably, if, when we do do it, you can assume that we're starting to see a potential ceiling within three years of the advertising market because we're going to want to get ahead of that. You guys announced uh, that you're going to do uh, start doing local news in, in a handful of uh, mid-tier markets, one of those Minneapolis where I grew up. You want to hire a couple people to cover uh, those metro areas. What does that person do? The, um, in the case of Minneapolis, there's two daily papers. Are they aggregating that? Are they out there reporting news on their own? And, and what can two people do to cover a relatively large metropolitan area? Yeah, uh, fair question. So we're basically we're going to pilot four of these, basically going to four different communities. It'll be uh, Minneapolis, Denver, uh, Des Moines, and Tampa. Uh, hopefully all of them launch somewhere around January of next year. The theory uh, you have to understand is like I started probably like you in local media. I, I spent a lot of my waking time thinking like if I had to solve the local media puzzle, how would I solve it? The conclusion that, that I had come to and others had come to in our shop over the last couple of years was if you were ever going to solve it, you would solve it kind of the way we started to with Axios or the way Morning Brew started to solve it for millennial uh, uh, financial uh, or business uh, content consumers, which is start with a daily newsletter, build an audience, uh, build an audience that you know that you can monetize on day one. As you get to certain audience thresholds and revenue thresholds, then add reporters on top of that, as opposed to creating a cost system that is so big on day one that it basically collapses the system within a couple of years, which is what's happened with a lot of the startups in that space. So to answer your question, what two really good Mike Allens or Sarah Fishers could do in a city is a combination of they're going to have some expertise that they bring to the table. Maybe they really understand local politics or education or business or technology. So they'll have their own sort of worldview, their own uh, their own reporting skills that they're bringing to the table, and then do some level of aggregation in terms of pointing people to really smart content across different platforms that a busy person in Minneapolis should be aware of. Uh, our thing is like we're coming peace. Like we're not coming to like compete with the necessarily the local paper. We're going to point people to other sources of information, encourage them to subscribe. We think any healthy marketplace should have multiple players uh, in it. And then if we're right and we're successful, then we'll build more reporting on top of that. I'm going to be honest with you about what I think about local. And it kind of, uh, there's like, there's a romantic in me and there's the realist in me. The romantic wants to believe people need good information without it. Communities are at their worst and there's got to be a way to fix it. The realist in me says, it's the hardest problem in American journalism to solve. Like nobody's really cracked the code on a business model that can sustain it. So we go into this eyes wide open. I think there's even probably a 50% chance, even with only two people, with all the tricks that we've learned through 15 years of doing this, it still might not work. Like we're, you know, like yeah, the models so far have been either rely on aggregation, right? Yeah. Pay as little or nothing for that content as possible and, and hope yeah. that bloggers or whomever create it for you. And there's real limits to that or try to sell a subscription business. 
Um, and we all know there's a very limited pool of people who want to pay for local news um, and probably not to support a lot of uh, uh, employees. And that's where, that's where we've been stuck now for 15 years, I think. Yeah. And we have a couple of advantages and a little twist on that. One advantage, a couple of advantages. One advantage is that we have distribution and we have an ecosystem already. So we already know how many people read Axios on a regular basis in Minneapolis that we think we could convert into daily readers. We also have an advertising base that we just discussed that wants to be able to reach hyper consumers of news on a daily basis. And so we might not necessarily have to sell a local ad. We might be able to get one of these bigger players. And I think we will, by the time we launch, have several of these bigger players eager to reach uh, this audience, which would give us some running room to build out that audience, build out additional coverage so that we can have a real value uh, for people who care about news on a daily basis, but might not have the time to sort of go and thumb through a newspaper the way they would have uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Again, it's a risk. It's like what you do when you're starting a business. You take a couple of different bets. You, I, I tend to look at these things optimistically. If we're right, it works everywhere, at least to a certain population point. And then we would roll it out in 30, 40, 50 places. You guys are, are in many ways a, a newsletter business. We're talking about newsletters a lot. Um, you just mentioned Morning Brew. We had Alex on. Um, there's, there's cycles of interest in newsletters. We're back at sort of peak interest in newsletters again. Uh, and there's a lot of interest in Substack, particularly this paid newsletter business. What, what do you think of that model? Uh, I like those guys. We've met them a while ago. I think they're very smart technologists. I think they have, uh, uh, they've definitely attracted a couple of writers who've had a lot of success on the platform. The question I have for them is the question that I've wrestled with for 15 years now in, in, terms, of, in, in terms of being someone who hires journalists. It's really, 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 really hard to find journalists who write on a daily basis with enough expertise that someone will read them on a routine basis and then pay them on a routine basis. Like right now, if I can find those people, I'll hire them and I'll pay them a lot of money and I'll give them colleagues to work with and editing tools and legal support and the possibility of being on an HBO show and podcast. But we'll give you the whole damn party. But they're really, really hard to find. Like, I'm sorry. Like, think about the number of people who in your in your space, in media, who on a routine basis tell you things you don't know. You can count them on the one hand. They're just really, really hard to find. And so what I don't know, and I only don't know it because I haven't asked them, I don't know where they're seeing a universe that would be big enough to sustain this massive stable of writers who are getting paid to write on a, on a routine basis that would make it a super attractive, massive ecosystem. Now, maybe they've figured something out that we haven't and people figure out stuff we haven't all the time. So I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not being critical of them because I actually admire the technology that they built. I admire uh, the brand that they've uh, created and they seem to, uh, everybody that I know that's talked to them feels like they're really solid business people and that they're good people to deal with. So like, that's a pretty awesome uh, yeah, it seems it seems like part of the question you have is sort of like that's an interesting business. Is it a VC business? Is this something where you're going to scale out, right? Because presumably Casey Newton, who just left uh, my colleague Casey Newton, just left The Verge to go do this. Yeah. He's going to do great, and he would do great with or without them, but he'll do great on Substack. And there's a handful of people who are doing great like that already. And and we we both have the same question: How many of these people are out there who are going to command readership and subscriptions over and over? And without them. 
how do you justify however much money they've raised? Um, you guys have now raised $57 million. You raised 27 of it. No, last I, think, year. I don't know where the journal got that in, but we've raised about 40 million. Okay. 40. Um, I remember writing about the, the, the last raise, um, you guys did some of that was secondary. Is that right? Uh, we raised a, a very small, uh, secondary. We raised at a, a 200 million pre valuation. So that was basically our third, our third raise, and then we said it at the time publicly. We haven't. I don't think we've touched the raise before that yet. So we're we're pretty cash healthy. The reason that we did the last raise is one, uh, uh, Glaybrook, who's our investor, is somebody we really wanted in as an investor. And like you, you want to be sort of a, and you want to be aggressive. But you want to be conservatively aggressive. You want to make sure that like if things get really bad and the economy goes to hell and we suffer, that we're not having to lay people off, which is the the thing I live in sort of fear of ever having to do, which we haven't had to do. And you want to be opportunistic if there's something to buy that we can be in a position to buy it. So we're, we're in a very nice, we're in a very nice position. And given that we just, we've gone through this hell of COVID and that we're still able to grow and that we're, we, I think we have 30 or so open slots, like we're blessed and we're blessed with a really cool group of people uh, to work with. But like, you know, like you, you got to fight every single day and make sure that you've got yourself set up for all the different permutations, good and bad. And I think we're set up pretty well. I mean, one big difference between what you're doing now and what you're doing at Politico is you now have a skin in the game. You're, there's there's real uh, upside for you if you guys continue to do well. That said, um, you've watched the BuzzFeeds and my employer, Vox Media, and the Vices raise a lot of money. And now you have those valuations hanging over their head. Um, how does that inform sort of how you guys think about raising money in the future? I mean, you think about it all the time, right? You don't ever want to get out over your skis. Uh, so we've never done a massive raise. I think we're both, I, I think, not that you got in trouble, but where it made it more difficult for Vox or more difficult for BuzzFeed was raising a lot of money at a very high valuation. And so if we were ever going to do that, we just have to do a big gut check and then look at what's happened in the past and then make a calculation on whether or not it's a wise thing to do. For us, the important thing is that we have full control of the company, that everybody at the company is a shareholder, and that we're always well positioned to be able to sort of control our own destiny and be able to build out Axios in a way that we think it's sort of destined to be. And I think by that measure, we're set up. And sitting on, on, under that, like the thing we haven't talked about, and it, it sounds soft, but it actually is probably the, the reason for our success is through 15 years of often getting it wrong, we have an amazing culture. We have amazing diversity. We have amazing equity. We have amazing uh, talent. We have a we have a talent team that knows how to filter out people who have our DNA that are just these high achieving people who tend to work exceptionally well with others. It allows us to do a lot more than most companies with 200 people can do. And that magic, that that culture part for any company is becoming more and more important each and every year. It's why our retention rates can be high. It's why we can attract real talent. It's why we never have any backbiting. We just, we've got this, the, the thing I'm most proud of out of everything that we've accomplished is that we have a culture of like really awesome, hardworking, ass-kicking people who really do put the cause above themselves. And that's an almost impossible thing to achieve and sort of knock on wood, uh, at least for the moment we've achieved it. In the spring, you guys went out and got a PPP loan. You got a bunch of criticism externally about that. Was there an internal discussion about that after the fact? Well, yeah, we, we, we discuss everything. One of the cool things about everyone being a shareholder is we, every week, Monday, you get to ask me any question, no matter how rude it is. You can ask it of Roy, of Mike, of anyone anonymously. So you're not even going to be, there's no way you'd be held accountable for it. So we talk about every single topic you can imagine. The PPP at the time, I, I remember sitting there at my desk 
looking at projections of what happens when your event business goes away and, and advertising locks up, we were staring at the possibility of losing 40% of our revenue almost overnight. And by the way, when I look back and look at what we had pegged as our most realistic scenario, we thought we'd be down somewhere 25% plus, and now we're up. It was un, it, at the time it was unthinkable and we're lucky. Like I think we did a lot of things right, but things also broke our way. We very quickly gave uh, the money back. Thankfully, uh, we did. Anyways, we, we were having success, so we would have ultimately had to return it and would have wanted to return it. Uh, anyway, my, my, you when you're running a business, right? Yeah. My, my question is, what what was there internal pressure that had you give it back? Like, what what prompted you to give it back? And a bunch of people ended up doing the same thing, taking the loan and then giving it back. But what what made no, you guys give it back? Really, it wasn't really. It was one thing I didn't calculate, and this would be on me. Was just like how much because we're a media company and because we're Axios, like like we were just made as like a poster child. Like people were really paying a lot of attention to it. Whereas like like tens of thousands of companies took it. And so there was more scrutiny than I would have wanted. And the thing I kind of worried about is like, crap, if we take this money and keep this money, even if we're doing the right thing and not laying people off, like I don't want that hanging over our heads. If somebody, God forbid, in the Trump administration uh, wants to stir up mischief because we took the money or, or somebody on Capitol Hill. So we pretty quickly said, this is not a good idea. Went to the board. The board said, let's reverse it. We reversed it. Uh, and like most things, we did it quickly, right? You fail on that one uh, uh, quickly. And, you know, we're, we're better for it because at the time we froze all of our positions. We became leaner and meaner like other companies. Now we've, we're, now we're back into hiring mode, but I think it made us a, it made us a better company. But like, that's the thing. It's why we think about well, raising money a year ago when you didn't have to raise money, you do it because that's the difference between being like, I was a journalist like you, and then being somebody who runs a company and, and fundamentally feels responsible for 200 lives, I don't want to lay people off. I love the fact that we're doing well enough that we created a family fund where anybody at our company for no questions asked, if you're telling me you're having problems because of the COVID, take out five grand and do whatever you need to do with it to take care of your family. We're not going to ask a question. That we're in a position to be able to take care of people. And by the way, I think that benefits the company long term because people feel like, wow, uh, this company, this executive team, even in the toughest of times, seems to be trying to do the right thing. And then they're explaining to us why they're doing uh, what they're doing. And I think, I think there's a lot of lessons there for other companies. And again, like, I don't say that like, oh, look at us, we're so great. I say it as somebody who, as you, you know, from the early days of Politico, like I wasn't that good of a leader. Like I was like a, definitely a workaholic and I think hopefully a pretty good journalist and I could like bark and get people to do stuff. But like, it was, I was not a good cultural leader. And like, now I feel like because I've been around really smart people and learned a lot of lessons, like I think we've, we figured out a couple of the ingredients of what it takes to tease out greatness in other people in a way that is sustainable and scalable. And like, that is fun. And it's something I never thought that I would get so much joy out of given that for most of my life, I just wanted to break a damn story. We spent nearly an hour talking about uh, your success. What's the mulligan you want over the last three years? What'd you get wrong? I don't know that there's been anything that, that there's nothing I'm embarrassed of. There's nothing I feel like, oh my God, like that was a, uh, an epically bad mistake. The, I will say the things, once you're the CEO of a company or you're a co-founder of the company, and I think most co-founders would say this, the thing that you get most wrong is hiring decisions. And it, it's hiring people that just, they, they're, maybe they're good people, but it was the wrong time, or maybe they just weren't the right fit. And then it takes months to undo, and then there's just a human uh, component of it. And so most mistakes that we get wrong 
I'd say fall into that category. I'd say one mistake that I used to make routinely that I don't think I make anymore, and hopefully people can hold me accountable on this, is I used to be really enamored, maybe it's because I was a shitty student, but I used to be really enamored with really smart people. And like, I would, I would overlook some human flaws because someone was so talented. And then I realized that the people are just so cancerous and just, they make you look worse because people know you're tolerating a type of behavior that's just something you shouldn't tolerate. And now we just don't tolerate it. I stand up before our, 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 our staff every quarter at our retreat. And I say, if I ever hear you talk behind somebody's back at this company, you're dead to me and you'll never recover. And, and I say it because like, I just don't want to be around people like that. Like I'm, you and I are blessed. We can do a lot of things with our lives and I want to be around really good people. I want to be around talented people who try to make me better, but like, I just don't want to be around people who are not of high character. And I think when I, when I, so when I get it wrong, it's not usually a character uh, issue. It just tends to be a fit issue and a timing issue. I think the short version of that is the no assholes theory. Yeah, and it's just it's complicated because we all say it, but it's really hard. Like you know it. I'm sure you have them in your life and in your company. There's people that are, ah, oh, you don't really want to get rid of them because they're bringing in so much money, or you know they break so many stories, or they edit so much copy, and then you just realize it's just not worth it. Like we got one run around this park, man, and like I don't want to be doing this run with people who are a freaking drag. Let's have less assholes in our life. Let's leave it there. Jim <laughs> Bandai, thank you for your time. There's news. Go cover it. Thank Take care. You. Take care, man. Thanks, Jim. Thanks again to Jim Vandehei, and thanks also to Shireen Ghaffari for coming on earlier to explain the state of antitrust to us. As always, thanks again to Jelani and Joel, who produce and edit this show, and our sponsors who allow us to bring it to you for free. Thanks again to you guys for listening. I don't often ask this, but I'll ask today just, for, just to mix it up a little bit. If you like this show, please tell someone else about it. You can tweet, you can skywrite, you could put something on Facebook, I guess. Um, you could rate and review us. Anything that says, hey, I listen to this show and I like it, and I think you should listen to it too. We appreciate your help in advance. We'll see you next week.